Many Christians today suffer from historical amnesia. The time between the apostles and their own day is one giant blank. This is in the prologue of Bruce L. Shelley's exceptional book, Church in Plain Language. It goes on to say, quote, As a consequence of our ignorance concerning church history, we find believers vulnerable to cultists. Some distortion of Christianity is often taken for the real thing. At the same time, Christians reveal a shocking capacity for spiritual pride, hubris, end quote. In our last episode, we got a teaser to observing the church, both the good and the bad. We are continuing that conversation because in uprooting and observing our faith, we have to recognize these beliefs didn't come out of a vacuum. We know that in the domino effect of our faith, the first domino was pushed in the Garden of Eden. But there are a lot of dominoes in between then and now that maintained the momentum. Looking at the development of Christianity is a vital part of the reversal of our misconceptions. We're tracing the genealogy of where some of those misconceptions began. In the process, we will explore the impact of the medieval church on their shaping of the Eurocentric image of Christ, the four periods of Christianity, and realize the international growth of Christianity and how in spite of the negative effects, the Holy Spirit always prevails. Welcome back. I'm Nicole Dominguez, and this is Faith Reconstructed. I think that uh, knowing history in general provides, I call, context and perspective for the present. Uh, so many times people, when they deal with uh, present events because they don't know the, the origins or the development of an event or an idea, their understanding of the present situation becomes a little bit skewed. This is Dr. Trevor Oregio. Dr. Oregio is the chair of the Church History Department at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary located on the Andrews University campus. It's safe to say that he is an authority when it comes to charting the nuance and development of the Christian church. So in order to get a full picture of something, you need its origins, its development, and so forth. So when we look at church history, I think about it it as the story of the church and how God has worked through individuals, through events to bring about uh, the church as we know it today. We become aware of the, the mistakes and the missteps of the church with a view that we don't want to repeat those mistakes. You know the old saying, those who are ignorant of the past are condemned to repeat it. And so history becomes a kind of a learning tool, a way in which we can uh, be better in dealing with present reality. I think one of the things that history teaches us also is it gives us assurance that God is in control of history. This is our reminder that God is anything but apathetic. He's not sitting by the sidelines hoping things turn out for the best, nor is he hiding, utterly powerless. John C. Peckham's book, Theodicy of Love, does an exceptional job parsing out God's participation in the past and the present. But for now, we have to acknowledge that history is important. In 2020, a national survey was conducted by the American History Association and showed that two-thirds of those surveyed saw history as nothing but names and dates, statistics rather than a narrative, despite the fact that they expressed interest in the subject. 
Multiple medical studies have also shown that memory loss can impair the ability to imagine the future. When we forget the past, we ignore the present and risk repeating ourselves in the future. So does that mean it's all up to us? Ellen White says, in the annals of human history, the growth of nations, the rise and fall of empires, appear as dependent on the will and the prowess of men. The shaping of events seems to a great degree to be determined by his power, ambition, and caprice. But in the word of God, the curtain is drawn aside and we behold behind, above, and through all the play and counterplay of human interest and power and passions, the agency of an all-merciful one silently, patiently working out the counsels of his own will. In other words, events that seem to be accidental or seem to be controlled primarily by the, the will of human beings are not necessarily so. There is a God that is orchestrating and is working behind the scene. I think one of the benefits also of church history is that we, we see the appearances of heresies across time. And when we understand church history, we become aware, oh, that particular heresy took place a thousand years ago, and now it's reappearing with a new face. I think also church history reminds us that uh, Christianity itself actually has died in many parts of the world. And uh, it can also inform us about how Christianity itself can be uh, resurrected. So what does that mean? It means that we haven't always done our best when representing Christianity. Both in the past and in the present, we follow certain thought patterns which lead to actions that take Christ out of the narrative. One of my favorite quotes is, bad things happen when you kick Jesus out of the house. And we see evidence of that. But we also see evidence of the early church and later the world church setting up spaces of refuge, being active in creating legislation and ministries that protect and uplift those who have fallen through the cracks, promoting education and autonomy. A good start is for us to take a look at the individuals who were active in their ministry and see them as complex humans, not just as one-dimensional caricatures. I think one of the ways in which it can affect us personally is by reading some of the biographies of these great Christian leaders. For example, when we think of Augustine, he's considered the preeminent theologian of Catholic theology, sometimes called the father of uh, medieval theology. And when we study his life, we notice a man that struggled with desires of the flesh. I mean, here's a guy who's considered a saint nowadays, who in his early life as a young man, he had this insatiable desire that he had a hard time controlling. But he had a praying mother. And he finally was able to overcome this particular addiction, that sexual addiction that he had. In fact, he, he wrote this book, probably the first spiritual biography called Confessions. So when you read that book, and you, when you reflect on your own life, you realize that the struggles that you presently are engaged in is not unique. Many of these struggles have been experienced by some of the greatest thinkers that have gone on before us. In fact, by studying their life, I think it gives us courage, it gives us faith, 
to face our own challenges, deal with our own uh, temptations, our own addictions. And so I think it has a very profound impact upon our personal spiritual development when we begin to study these individuals and study the way how they overcame. When reflecting upon religious figures or powerhouses within Christianity, we can easily be blinded by their image of perfect faith. There is no before, only after. Or the before and after seems to have happened with such ease and no struggle that it can easily look as though they have, quote-unquote, better faith than us mere mortals. That isn't the case. There are points where we see the disciples mess up, get frustrated, mishandle a situation, and those accounts are included not to prove that such actions are immediately good because they were done by a disciple, but were included to remind us that even those who walked with God and were empowered by the Holy Spirit are still human. I also want to add one important point. When we study church history, we begin to recognize how Christianity has penetrated various cultures, and we see where it failed or where it succeeded. In other words, Christianity has had to adapt itself to the various cultures and nations around. And uh, by studying these particular experiences, it can provide for us a kind of a template, a way in which we can then engage our present world. One of the most famous quotes from the Confession is a quote that goes something like this, and I'm summarizing. It says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls shall not find rest until they find rest in thee. That's a famous quote by Augustine in which he suggests that in every human heart there is this desire for God. In other words, there's a God hole in all of us. And what human beings have attempted to do, they have attempted to fill this void with other things, whether it's pleasure, it's money, it's power, position, but ultimately, only God can fill this void. And for me, that's a quote that I have kept in my life all these years because I ultimately recognize that Human beings are not just simply beings made by someone else. They're made by a loving creator. And our fulfillment, our joy, our ultimate satisfaction in life finds itself in a relationship with our creator. The argument of the God hole is not a new one. Christians and non-Christians alike know that we as humans are searching We've mentioned this in previous episodes, however, now we're seeing the application of our pursuit and how we as humans try to fulfill that need in a way convenient to us. I'm not just talking about the examples we hear in Christian spheres, such as people in the world trying to satisfy what only God can through money, alcohol, sex, drugs, etc. Are all those examples valid? Absolutely, but they're not the full picture. Sometimes we try to replace God through work academic achievements, external validation, relationships, hobbies, perfectionism, even increased religious activities or involvement. Inevitably, our image of God will try to warp in order to satisfy the calling that we're comfortable with or benefits us. This is where we need to ask God for discernment, remembering who God revealed himself to be. 
This kind of grounding allows us to have greater intimacy with God, encouraging us to live in a way that reflects Him. Unfortunately, history has shown us that God's character often becomes cut down, misshapen, or completely made up to serve our own interest. When you study church history, what we discover is a fundamental flaw of human beings, regardless of their their time in history, regardless of their religion or their race, and that is the desire to create a God after their own image. And so what we see over the flow of church history are religious groups or denominations that instead of trying to understand the true God of the scripture, essentially what they do is they recreate a God that fits their culture, a God that fits their image. And so it's really not the true authentic God of the scripture, but it's a God fashioned after their own desire, or own interests. Uh, and this, this has been a problem of, for human beings, as I said, in every age. When you study the religions and the civilizations of the past, human beings have always tried to do that. And Christianity is no exception. <laughs> Even though we claim that we are followers of the true God, when you study carefully many of these religions, you discover that, hmm, this God that they are promoting is a God that has been fashioned after their own culture, their own understanding, and indeed, he is not the God of the scriptures. There are examples of this across dozens of cultures, but the most pervasive and the one that shaped Christianity's image as an institution and major player in shaping history is the medieval church. So what happens is that as the church becomes part of the general culture, it begins to partake of the characteristic of that particular culture. And the culture then begins to shape the way the religion evolved. So by the time we get to the medieval age, uh, I want to look at it in terms of two aspects, the cultural aspects and the theological aspects. So the god of the medieval age uh, is a European god. He's a white god. Uh, because now Christianity has been co-opted by Western culture. So this god is a Nordic type of god. Uh, he has blue eyes. He has long flowing hair. He's, he's everything that is what we call the ideal European man, culturally. Of course, the problem with that is he's no longer the god of all nations because he has now been particularized. He has been uh, localized within a specific culture. And, and therefore, he becomes almost unacceptable to the rest of the world. And this is the God, unfortunately, that the Europeans took to the other parts of the world. So that's on the cultural level. But theologically, the God of the medieval age because he's now controlled, by the way, by the Roman Catholic Church. As Dr. Reggio continues, I want you to follow the domino effect. 
Notice the origins of some of the misconceptions we have addressed in previous episodes. Though this era is not where these ideas were invented, it is where they were globalized. This is a god that has now been monopolized and controlled by one organization. And it is their concept of God that is going to be the predominant view of God for the West, for Western Christianity. So what kind of God do they promote? This is a God who is, for example, very far removed from human beings. He can only be reached through the agency of the church or the priests. In other words, he's an inaccessible God. Another important point about this God is that he's not a God who comes after us. He doesn't initiate a relationship. We have to appease him by our many activities, the sacraments, the parasacramental activities, you know, the, sa the saying of Ave Marias, uh, going on pilgrimages and uh, doing all of these host of things to get his attention. We have to do something to try to have him hear us. So this is obviously not the God of the scriptures because we have to work hard. And by the way, even though you work hard, you never seem to be able to work hard enough for him to love you. His love is always conditional. It's limited. As I said, it's, and it's only possible through the church. It is only through the blessing of the church, the organization, that this God becomes real to the believer. A third point is that not only is he inaccessible and he has to be appeased, but he's no longer a God of mercy and love. He's a, a God who exacts judgment, capricious. Image of God. And he was working so hard doing everything to try to to win the approval of this God. It's, it's like having a parent who, no matter what you do, they're never ever happy with who you are or what you do. You can never do enough to satisfy them or to please them. Relationship. This is the God that is presented, a God that is he's not merciful, he's not loving, uh, and he's, he's quick to cut you off at the least sign of your misdeed. And so what we have in the medieval age, the two dominant emotions animating Christians is fear, the fear of God, fear of judgment, and this overwhelming sense of anxiety because this is a God who is hard to please and no matter how hard we work, we're never able to please him completely. What a distorted view of God. This is not, this is not the God of the scripture. Identity. So, so Martin Luther, because of this concept of this God, how could you fall in love with a God like that? That was his dilemma. This was a God that was unlovable, especially for sinners. When we deconstruct our faith, observing our beliefs and putting them against scripture, we begin to identify the misconceptions and we see all the perceptions we got wrong. This in and of itself is a major step that should not be trivialized because it's the beginning of study and restoration. But at the same time, inevitably, we ask ourselves how we got these misconceptions to begin with. 
before you met misguided Christians, before the bad church experience, before the horrible school, before all of that, there was sin. A DNA reversal that happened in the garden. The ideals the medieval church built on weren't new. What they did was institutionalize the reversal. Let me clarify, the original intent of the medieval church was not to become a destructive, problematic institution. There were eras in history when the globalization of the church meant beginning spaces of refuge, education, and advancement. Then the medieval church closed ranks around the gospel and did one of the most effective and damaging PR spins in human history. It would be generalizing to say the warped image of Christianity and God began with the medieval church. However, as Shelley puts it, at the bottom of it is the inadequacy of human nature that comes under judgment. For in the course of time, it is human nature that turns the good thing into an abuse. We are still seeing the remnants of this today. The medieval church changing Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, the belief that works are the only way to heaven, inventing eternal damnation and purgatory to promote fear, and spreading the lie that God is fickle and angry and will only talk to official religious leaders. Our purpose is to identify the lie and remove it completely. This was the calling of the reformers. The Protestant Reformation was an attempt to break with the Catholic past. But just think about it. If you're living in a cave for a thousand years, and when you emerge from the cave, you obviously, your eyes are not adjusted to the light. And so in many ways, the reformers, they could not fully come into the light of God's truth. And so all of the reformers, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, only had parts of the truth elements of it, which they transmitted to us. There are a few other names that deserve mention in this movement, and as is the way with anyone born in the 14th century, they're both named John. John Wycliffe and John Huss. Both were major figures in reforming the medieval church. John Wycliffe, a preacher and Oxford academic, condemned the church's self-aggrandizing and the unnecessary ceremonies designed to make God seem unreachable. John Huss, a Czech reformer, was vocal against the papacy and their self-identification as God's representative. Both men were deconstructors eager to get back to the scriptures and remind the church of the original mission. This is what makes the reformers so interesting. Rather than throwing the whole faith away, they dissected it. They got into the roots and asked the hard questions and challenged the Catholic Church, not out of petty spite or the desire to catch them out, but because they knew that God was too good and the gospel too profound in order for it to be cut down or misused. The Reformation was a reconstruction of Christianity within the hearts of those who listened. Yes, the remnant of Catholicism is still very much a part of our spiritual DNA. But more than that, uh, it's not just what we have received from our forebears, our spiritual forebears, but there's something innate within human beings about how we try to relate to God. The medieval church is one of the worst abusers of God's word. 
However, the core idea of taking our innate understanding that there could be a god and warping it to fit into man-made mythology does not just belong to Western civilizations. When you study pagan religions, or all religions in every age, there's one fundamental principle that emerges, and that is the desire of human beings to try to save themselves. Salvation by works is a fundamental principle in every religion, every false religion. And so deep within us still, outside of Catholicism, if we never had Catholicism, there would be still that something in us where we are trying to, to do something to gain some sort of personal credit for our own salvation, rather than simply accepting the free gift of grace. The idea of the free gift of grace is so, you know, it's so strange to human thinking. The idea that a God could love us without us having to do anything. This is a concept that, even though we have been Christians for many years, we still don't grasp the immensity of it. I remember as a student in Walla Walla College, uh, the week of prayer speaker, he made a statement. He said that there is nothing that you can do for God to love you less or to love you more. When I heard that statement, I was really taken aback by it. There's nothing that you can do for him to love you less or to love you more. Now, you can become more aware of his love in your own personal relationship with him, but his love is constant, it's unconditional, and trying to do all these things to earn our way. Earned our way is, uh, is something that is impossible, but as I said, it's a human problem. Dr. Reggio brings up a brilliant point. If it wasn't medieval Catholicism, it would have been something else. Because sin is in the world, there will always be evil. Maybe in an alternative universe, it would have been another movement, another continent, another people group to overtake and colonize and abuse God's image. This is a difficult truth. However, this is the benefit of reconstructing after deconstructing. We now have a clear image of God to work with. Reconstructing our faith is an individual reformation that begins to heal the break in our separation from God. Suddenly, one of our greatest challenges is really believing God could ever love us that much or do so much just to remind us we don't have to worry or doubt or fear, but just rest in the profound grace he's granted us. The idea is trying to reconstruct a better understanding of God and so forth in spite of our background and education. So I think one of the first things we need to become aware of is our miseducation. The first step to solve a problem is to be aware of the problem, to be diagnose it correctly. You know, in theology we talk about homartheology, which is the study of sin, theology of sin. And then we have soteriology. You can't go to soteriology unless you understand the nature of sin. Because the nature of sin, understanding it, determines the way you deal with it. Let's hit pause for a second. You might be wondering what soteriology is. In the middle of this interview, I was also wondering what soteriology is. 
The definition is theology dealing with salvation. Basically, it's a study of salvation, asking the questions, what is salvation? How do we gain salvation? How does salvation exist in relation to Jesus? Inevitably, if we are deconstructing our Christianity, we have to look at salvation, therefore unintentionally diving into some soteriology. We're dedicating an entire episode to salvation later on, so we'll look back to it then. But in the meantime, don't let the academic name fool you. Soteriology is more effortless than you think. I think some ways in which you can kind of deconstruct is, as I said, become aware of the fact that we ourselves have been uh, miseducated and we need to think about ways in which we can think about God in a new way. Secondly, we have to reject, unfortunately, many of the paradigms, our understanding of history. <laughs> you know, I, I have been teaching church history for a while, and I began to reflect on how church history has been taught, and I realized that there has been a very select and elite group of people who write these books, these textbooks, and they write them from a certain perspective. Very narrow, very Eurocentric, I hate to say. We have to reject some of the things that we have been taught and try to study for ourselves. And there it is. At this point, it's no surprise we've been given a rather limited scope of Christianity. Though we can trace major movements and institutions that warped Christianity and their attempt to share it, we can't just focus on the people groups that got it wrong and leave it at that. We also have a responsibility to recognize that Christianity's birth and development as a movement wasn't contained in Spain or Germany or even Rome, but was a global movement that asked followers to go ye into the world. In our next episode, we'll be continuing our conversation with Dr. Trevor Reggio by charting the progression of the Christian church and how it slowly expanded, then morphed, and its revival and preservation by the enslaved individuals in America. You've been listening to Faith Reconstructed. Each episode is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nicole Dominguez, edited by Katrina Simbaku, logo design and social media by Chelsea Ernina, tech and equipment support by Steve Husett and James Gigante, project support by Heather Moore, special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening. Adventist Learning Community Podcast.